0: And if you will, uh, please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10. Actually, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 9. Um, We'll read verses 22 through verse 3 of chapter 10. So Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22... And Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them, and came down from offering of the sin offering, and the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation, and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord. And consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either one of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Uh, We'll be continuing our series through worship this morning. But since it's been a while since I've been able to preach to you, I figured it'd be wise to maybe give a quick summary of where we've been up to this point. Uh, This is the third sermon that we are going through regarding worship. In our first sermon, we preach through Leviticus chapter 9. And in that chapter, we read about the first formal public worship of God. This was the first worship service of the tabernacle. And we saw from that text a basic definition of worship. We said that it was making an approach unto God. This is what was going on in Leviticus chapter 9. God had given the Israelites a way to enter into his presence He made a way for the tabernacle to become the tent of meeting. He made a way for sinful men and women, like ourselves, to come before him and to commune with him. As we just read, Moses and Aaron were able to come into the tabernacle, which they couldn't do before. And God's glory appeared unto all the people. And we said that this was made possible primarily through the sacrifices and through the priesthood. And we saw how these things point to the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. The sacrifices point to Christ as the perfect sacrifice. Christ is the perfect substitute. He's the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Christ stood in the place of sinners dying the death that they deserve so that they may stand justified before God when they come to him in faith. And he's the perfect priest who offers the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And he stands before God, interceding as our representative before the Father. And we concluded with these three points that we'll continue to build upon today. Uh, First, we said, That true worship seeks communion with God. True worship seeks communion with God. That was the whole purpose of instituting this formal public worship. It was a means of cleansing and sanctifying the Israelites so that they could approach God. Remember, God is much too holy and we are much too sinful to casually walk into the presence of God. There needed to be some kind of setting apart, some kind of sanctification of the people for God to reveal himself to them. We saw also that true worship is by faith in Jesus Christ. We must come to God through this priest. We must appeal to his sacrifice because it's through Christ and Christ alone that we can truly be cleansed from our sins. And it's through Christ and Christ alone that we can truly have access to God. And lastly, we said that true worship obeys God's commands. Since we, by our sin, have broken fellowship with God, He sets the rules on how we can commune with Him again. Since we, by our sins, have separated ourselves from God, he sets the rules on how we can approach him again. This is the point that we expanded upon in our second sermon on worship. We discussed in that sermon what we called the regulative principle of worship. We said we do not have the authority to choose for ourselves the way in which we can worship God. We do what God commands, and we must be careful not to add to or to take away from his instructions. We saw, as we just read, the sin of Nadab and Abihu. The reason they were consumed by fire is because they performed an act of worship that God had not commanded them to do. He never said they couldn't do it, but that didn't give them a right to do it. And so any act of worship not commanded by God is forbidden by him. We do not get to invent for ourselves new worship practices. We only do what God commands. But it's not enough simply to do the right things in worship. In fact, it's, it's very possible to do all the right things with a heart that God will reject. As we'll see from our text this morning, worship isn't ultimately about performing religious duties. Yes, we, we must do them. Yes, they're important. But there's more to it than just what's on the outside. True worship demands a heart that sanctifies the Lord. We'll take as our text specifically these words from verse 3 of chapter 10. I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. God says, if you're going to worship me, If you're going to come near to me, if you're going to approach me, I must be sanctified in your heart. There's a world of a difference between true biblical worship and the mere performance of religious duties. A lot of people think that if they come to church, and they, they bow their head in the prayer, and they sing the songs, and they read the word, and they listen to the preacher as he preaches, that they are therefore engaged in worship. But that's not fundamentally what worship is. Worship is a response of the heart in the presence of God. Yes, we worship in our singing, and we worship in our praying, and in our reading, and in our listening to the sermon. But if the Lord is not sanctified in your heart in these things, then it's not worship. If you don't respond to the presence of God with fear and reverence, then it's not worship. God is present here and now. And so we'll ask the question this morning, how should the special presence of God in worship influence the way in which we worship? How should the special presence of God in worship influence the way in which we worship? When you come to worship God, you're making an approach into his special presence. We can't take that lightly. This this isn't something that we could just move on from. This is more than just a theological fact. It's more than just something that we confess one time and then ignore through the rest of the service. This is the reality of worship. The triune God is present, and we are approaching him by an act of faith. And to understand this a little bit better, let's consider the, the presence of God. To say that God is present in our worship might not seem like such a big deal to you because, well, don't we confess and believe that God is omnipresent? Don't we believe that God is present everywhere? The children in our church know this. One of the questions that we are going through in the catechism asks, where is God? And the answer is, God is everywhere. When David was meditating upon God, he wrote in Psalm 139, where shall I go from thy spirit or where shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. This is called God's essential presence. God is present everywhere. He's omnipresent And the essential presence of God is a comfort to the believer, but it's a terror to the unbeliever. Just think, if if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, then you are at peace with God. And he promises to be with you, to sustain you and to comfort you through any affliction. Through any pain or suffering or persecution, no matter where you are or what you're going through, God is there and he is with you. This is why David writes in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And God promises believers in Isaiah 43, which is actually a reference to one of the songs we just sang. When thou pass through the waters, I will be with thee. And the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. God promises to be with you through every trial. Through every circumstance. God is everywhere. And so he's always with you. No matter where you are. And while this is a comfort to believers. Think about how terrible this is. For unbelievers. To know. That God is is your enemy you are an enemy of God and God is against you and you can never hide from him to know that God sees all your sins and all your wicked lusts and all your vile pleasures he knows your every thought and he can see your your hateful and your blasphemous heart and he can at any moment send you to hell God's presence should cause you to flee to Christ. You can't hide from the judgment of God. You could try to ignore it. You could try to pretend like it won't happen eventually. But you know the truth. And you know that you can't run from it. God is present everywhere. But does this mean that God is present in the same way in every place at all times? No. God tells us that he dwells in certain places. And he manifests himself in different ways. Remember the problem that we were left with at the end of Exodus? The tabernacle was finally completed. But Moses was not able to enter into it because the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's glory was manifested differently within the tabernacle than it was outside of it. So we need to make a distinction. God is present everywhere. But he's not present in the same way in all places At all times. And so, besides his essential presence, there have to be a couple other ways that we can understand how God is present. We won't have time to consider them all, but think about, for instance, God's covenantal presence. In the covenant of grace, God establishes a saving relationship with sinful men. He says, if you come to me by faith, then you will be saved. And notice the conditional language there. If you come to me by faith, you will be saved. So just to be clear, just because people are elected by God unconditionally in eternity past doesn't mean that there are no conditions for coming into the covenant. In time. That's important to bear in mind. Because you might have heard otherwise. Election. Is unconditional. There was nothing. In the elect. That prompted God. To choose them. And not others. But the covenant of grace. Is not unconditional. Salvation. Is. Is not unconditional. Time and time again you'll read in the Bible. What must I do to be saved? And the answer is always. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. You must lay hold of Christ. To be saved. And yes it's a work of the spirit. And yes, God is sovereign over all of it, but you are responsible for taking hold of Christ by faith. It's your faith that must be exercised. It's your will that must choose to come to Christ. And when you do, what happens? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, Christ will dwell in your heart. He obviously means something other than the way in which Christ is omnipresent as God. If God is present everywhere, in the same way, in all places, at all times, then God would dwell in the unbeliever in the same way that he dwells in the believer. But no. God is covenantally present in the believer. Christ dwells in the hearts of those who've come to him by faith in a way that he doesn't dwell in the hearts of those who haven't come to him by faith. And in the same way, God is present in our worship in a way that God is not present At other times, this is called his special presence. And in scripture, it's tied to a corporate gathering of his people. Later on in Leviticus, in chapter 26, we'll read things like, Ye shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. For I am the Lord thy God and I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and I will be your God and ye shall be my people. There was a promise from God to dwell in the midst of the tabernacle, to walk among the people as they congregated there. On the Sabbaths. It's the same word used in Genesis chapter 3, where we read that before the fall of man, God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. It's a sign of communion and, and fellowship. God dwelt in the tabernacle in a special way, His special presence was in the tabernacle when the people gathered together. That's why when David was unable to participate in public worship, he reflected on the times that he had gone with the multitude to the house of God. And he writes in Psalm 42 My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? David knew he he couldn't escape God's essential presence. He made that clear in Psalm 139. But here he shows that God is present in a special way in the congregation of his people. So when we gather together for public worship, we are coming before God's special presence. Pay attention to the corporate language in our text. God says, I will be sanctified in them that come near to me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. God walks among the assembly of his people when they worship him. God walks in the midst of his church, even now. Writing to the churches, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that ye, now remember ye is plural, it's corporate, ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the promise of Leviticus chapter 26 applied to the New Testament gathering of the church. So when we are gathered together for worship, God dwells in our midst in a special way. Just like he did in the tabernacle. When we gather for worship, God is in our midst. He walks among us. And we appear before him. So let's return to our main question. How should the special presence of God in worship influence the way in which we worship? We can't just brush this off how should it influence the way in which we worship? The answer is in our text. Because we are in the special presence of God in worship, we must sanctify the Lord in our hearts. Let's consider what that means a little bit further. To sanctify literally means to set apart, or in this context, to, to recognize as holy. The Greek equivalent is used in the Lord's Prayer when we pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We're praying that God's name will be sanctified in all the earth. We're praying that the all the world will regard God as holy. We are praying that all of creation would acknowledge and confess that the triune God is perfect in and of himself. Perfect in his being. Perfect in his essence. Perfect in holiness. We are praying that the whole world will confess with Moses, who said, Who is like unto Thee, O Lord? Who is like Thee, glorious in holiness? Our God is a holy God. And when our hearts truly acknowledge Him as holy, we can no longer think of Him casually. We can no longer speak of him flippantly. We can no longer, we certainly can no longer, worship him irreverently. God's holiness demands our reverence. God's holiness demands our fear. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs explains this well. He says the saints sanctify God in their hearts when they fear God as a holy God and reverence him and love him as a holy God. So what does it mean to fear God? God. Well, there are two types of fear of God in the Bible. Uh, The first is traditionally called a slavish fear of God. It's compared to the fear that a slave would have towards his master. If a slave doesn't do what his master wants him to do, then there will be punishment. So the slave fears his master. It's a fear characterized by terror. The slave does not want to be punished, and so he's afraid of his master. This slavish fear is not the kind of fear that a Christian should have of God. This is the fear of God that ought to characterize the unregenerate. It's not always the case, but they ought to have this kind of fear. Not being united to Christ by faith, the unregenerate are under the wrath and curse of God. And therefore, they ought to fear. They ought to be terrified before God. This is like Adam in the garden after he had sinned, but before God extended grace to him. When Adam heard the voice of God in the garden, he tried to hide himself from the presence of God. And he explains to God a bit later, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid. He knew he had sinned. He knew he had disobeyed God and so he was afraid and he hid himself from God. He was afraid of the consequences of punishment. This kind of fear is the opposite of love. 1 John 4:18 says There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. So where there's a slavish fear, a fear of torment and punishment, there is no love. This is the fear of the unbeliever, not the fear. Of the Christian. But the Christian should have a fear of God. In fact, a Christian must have the fear of God. Not a slavish fear, it's what we call a filial fear. This kind of fear, instead of being opposed to love, is actually motivated by love. The more a Christian loves God, the more the Christian will fear God. Filial fear is the kind of fear that a child ought to have towards his parents. The child ought to love and respect his parents, and therefore, the child should fear offending and disobeying his parents. If the child disobeys, there may be chastening. There may be some consequences. There may be discipline. But even this is out of love. There's a relationship of love between the child and the parent. This is the Christian's Fear of God it's built on a relationship of love the Christian doesn't fear God's everlasting punishment anymore why not because Jesus Christ bore the punishment that we deserve he endured the wrath and curse of God in our place so that we may stand justified before God And being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So now our fear of God is not a fear of torment and punishment, but a fear of dishonoring God. We don't want to offend God because we love and we honor and respect him. And so we frame our lives around obeying God out of a fear of offending him. John Murray says that the fear of God is the soul of godliness. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. Because we fear God, we endeavor to honor and please Him in all things. And so when we speak of God or when we think of God, we speak and we think with reverence. Our conduct before God is characterized by a godly fear. Of him. This is why believers throughout scripture are described as people who fear God. For example, when, when God describes Job, he says, There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that fears God. And shuns evil. And Nehemiah describes the servants of God as those who desire to fear his name. Do you have a desire to fear his name? Christians are characterized by the fear of God. And Christian worship is characterized by the fear of God. The man who comes into God's presence without fear is guilty of sin. To come before God in worship, to pray to him, to sing to him, to read his word without reverence and without fear, Is to take the Lord's name in vain. The third commandment tells us. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And the Heidelberg Catechism explains. What this commandment requires of us. And it says. That we use the holy name of God. No otherwise than with fear and reverence. So that he may be rightly confessed. And worshiped by us and be glorified in all our words and works. God's holiness demands our respect, God's holiness demands our reverence, God's holiness demands our fear. If you Have sanctified the Lord in your heart. If you regard him as holy. If you have a sense of the majesty. And the glory of God. Then you will fear him. And you will approach him with humility. Because we are unworthy. And out of a desire. To honor and glorify him in all things. You will endeavor to obey him. And you will dread even the thought of displeasing him. That's what it means to fear God. It's to stand in awe of him. To see him as majestic and glorious and holy and perfect And worthy of all of your your deepest honor and love and admiration and respect. God says, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. I will be regarded as holy. I will be regarded as majestic. I will be feared by them that come nigh me. Psalm 89 in verse 7 says that God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. And to be had in reverence of all of those who are about him. The fear of God is essential to the worship of God. If we're not worshiping in the fear of God, then we're not worshiping at all. But I want to consider just briefly who puts this fear of God in our hearts. It's not something we can produce in ourselves. Our hearts are wicked. The carnal man will never begin to fear God in this way without the work of God upon his heart. God says in Jeremiah 32 and verse 40, I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. This fear of God is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. In giving us a new heart, a heart made willing to believe, He gives us a heart of fear. And so the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of the fear of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 11. The fear of God is a grace in our hearts. And so a lack of the fear of God in your life is evidence of a lack of God's saving work in your heart. And I want to start putting some of these pieces together here. We've been saying that worship is making an approach unto God. But we've also said that the only way to approach God is through his son. So we can expand our definition a little bit to say that worship is making an approach unto God through his son but this worship must be in the fear of God it's not worship if it's without fear and this fear of God comes from the spirit of God and so worship is making an approach unto God through his son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Worship is Trinitarian in nature. Paul makes this clear for us. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, that through Christ we have access by one Spirit unto the Father. So through the Son, By the Spirit unto the Father, we worship a triune God and the way in which we worship reflects His triune nature. Our triune God is holy and majestic and glorious and perfect. May He be sanctified in our hearts as we stand before him. May we worship him acceptably with reverence and with godly fear. Amen.